You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Innovations in Medicine, enhancing the medical community's knowledge of science and biotechnology. Innovations in Medicine is sponsored by Amgen, where pioneering science delivers vital medicines. For more information about Amgen, visit www.amgen.com. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. The genome of us, of all of us, Homo sapiens, has now been sequenced and is being widely used in the field of biomedical research. It was a great triumph of biomedical research to sequence the human genome. But what is the human genome? It turns out that the one genome that was sequenced, or the several that were contributed to that sequence, do not cover nearly all the variation in the human genome. Our guest is working on the dizzying task of sequencing 62 additional human genomes of specifically chosen people around the world. Dr. Evan Eichler is a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator at the University of Washington in Seattle and an expert in such fields as genomics, disease, and evolution. He joins us now to talk about his work. Welcome to the program, Dr. Eichler. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You worked on the original Human Genome Project yourself as one of the many people involved in that effort. That's correct. I worked on it from um, 1996 to about 2001 and continued to work on it after it was initially published. And you worked on it with a team of, what, several hundred people or more than that? Well, the initial genome project was done by uh, probably about 3,000 different individuals working in different cities and different countries across the world. Part of that was I was working in in, uh, California back in my postdoctoral days working on it, and then continued to work on it as I started off as an assistant professor. And if I'm not mistaken, when the Genome Project was finished, you swore up and down that you would never do this kind of thing again. Yeah, well, in part because we worked on some of the most difficult bits, the parts that were hardest to get together at the end. And now we understand more about why they were so difficult, but in part it was because there was so much variation, big-scale variation, between individuals. And so that made finishing these regions, so we thought, uh, this idea that there would be one genome for everyone, more difficult because, in fact, there were many different genomes that would need to be sequenced to resolve these regions. So there you were. You worked with all these people, this huge collaboration. You did the hard stuff. You finally got it done. You swore you'd never do it again. And what happened? How'd you get back into this business? Well, I think part of it (laughs) came back to looking at the underbelly of the genome. We had stared at these bad regions or these tough regions for so long. We knew they were important in terms of disease. And so we realized after we finished the first human genome that there was probably much more variation there in other individuals that we just simply hadn't tapped yet. And so that kind of, uh, after a hiatus of maybe about a year, we uh, rolled up our sleeves and went back in again. Who was the subject? Whose genome, in the Human Genome Project, whose genome was that? Right. So it is on the order of about 100 different individuals who contributed some sequence to the genome. About 70% of it came from one individual. And so in that one individual, there are two what we call haplotypes, which is a representation of either mom or dad's chromosome. So most of it comes from one individual, but parts of it are an amalgamation, if you will, of different different individuals. Do we know anything about that one individual, where he or she was, sex? We must know gender. We know it's gender. It was a male. But in fact, that identity was kept fairly secretive through a lot of anonymization um, to make sure that this information, which would be made public, wouldn't reveal some something that would be adverse to that individual. Now, do we know whether that individual was chosen for specific reasons or just someone who was somehow convenient in someone's laboratory? It was a normal donor without any serious disease. That's all we know. So now the project is to sequence the genomes of 62 people. Do we know who they are? Do we know anything more about them than we knew about this first individual? Yes. So these are individuals that come from different regions of the world 
a group from Asia, a group from Africa, and a group descended from Europeans. And so the idea is to sequence genomes from each of these different groups as a function of the diversity. We also know that these same individuals uh, have been sequenced at the level of single nucleotide differences. So we have information already on about 3 million or 4 million single nucleotide changes on these individuals. We have part of the genome of each of them is what you're saying. Correct, correct. And so the idea will be to go into these individuals and to get a more complete view of genetic variation by going specifically after the larger events that may have been missed as part of the original genome project. The variations we're talking about here, what are these variations? What kinds of things are we interested in? So we're looking at events that involve the loss or gain of additional sequences. It can even involve inversions of particular types of sequences. So these are pieces of DNA that have been flipped around. These are events that typically are beyond the level of just simple sequencing. They're events that are quite large, can be really tens of thousands of base pairs or nucleotides in terms of length, and can mean that individuals have, in fact, different complements of genes. In fact, we know this now that if you actually go to individuals, go to your next-door neighbor, you will know that there are, in fact, not only single small changes that distinguish you from that person, but also the presence or absence of specific genes. And so what we're trying to do is find those genes that were missing as part of the original genome project and find the, the regions and the genes that are actually deleted in a large fraction of the population. You know, you look at your next-door neighbor, things are different. Or somebody's got red hair, or somebody's tall, somebody's short, somebody has asthma. Uh, is it all of these kinds of things that we're looking for that are reflections of these variations? Probably in the end, all of it will be affected at some level. So we know, for example, that green color blindness, the inability for certain individuals to see green or red, which is very common in males, is caused by this type of variation. But more often than not, many of the genes that we are finding and others are finding are genes associated with immune response. And so now we know there are you know, risks to colonic Crohn's disease, uh, glomerulonephritis, a variety of susceptibility factors for infection or infectious disease that are mediated by the presence or absence of additional copies of, in particular, immune response genes. So these variations that we're looking for, you couldn't have done it with 20 or 30 people? You needed 60? Yeah. The reason for that was in part because we believe, and there's good data to, to support this, that there may be, in fact, differences between population groups. So in essence, even though we're sampling from Asia and Africa and Europe, we probably need to sample more deeply than just those 62 uh, initially. So uh, because there's more variation between groups, we need to actually sample more groups in order to get a good representation of those different genomes. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. We're talking to Evan Eichler of the University of Washington about sequencing not one, but 62 new human genomes. So it's a bit of a statistical game. I guess to get all the variation, you've got to sequence everybody on the planet. But it, the game is here that if you sequence 62, you get enough to make it interesting. Right. So the idea here is we're going after the common variation. And to get essentially a good representation of that, we need about 20 to 40 chromosomes from each population group. And so each individual has two sets of chromosomes, one from their mother and the father. And so this is a good start. And we estimate that this will get us probably 90% of the common variation that, is, that has a frequency of about 10% or greater. So that's our cutoff uh, in this analysis. This is a bargain if you look at it that way, 62 people, and you get most of the common variations of everybody on Earth. That's correct. The original genome project took many years and cost billions of dollars. Does that mean this is going to take 62 times as long and cost 62 times as much? No. So there's been a lot of cost savings uh, since the time of the original genome project. 
we estimate that this will probably cost us on the order of two orders of magnitude less than the initial genome project per individual. And hopefully with new changes and new developments in technology, this will maybe become three orders of magnitude or more as we go on. How long will it take you to finish this project, do you anticipate? Well, we're anticipating a two-year turnaround for these 62 uh, individuals. It may take longer than two years, but, you know, with the technology, the way things move, everything goes faster. Um, And additional genomes will be sequenced uh, probably beyond these 62 in the very near future. I guess a different area, but not unlike the way computers get cheaper and faster and such all the time. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about the kind of variations we're looking for here, what they mean, what's going on. You talked about some of the individual point mutations that have already been known. Many of those were known independently of the genome project that people had looked for and found. Uh, What kinds of variations are you looking for with this project? So we're looking for these events where there's, in fact, gains, increases in copy number, or there are, in fact, losses where these genes are missing, or new genes potentially have been inserted in different regions. This will affect, basically, the expression of this gene or gene family. So if a gene is deleted on mom's chromosome and dad has a, has a copy of it, you'll have half the level of expression of that gene. In some cases, if both mom and dad's chromosome are deleted, you'll have no expression of that gene or no presence of that gene. And that type of an effect, those types of differences in terms of expression, we think, are going to be very important for disease susceptibility. I can understand what it means to have no expression or expression of a gene. Can you give us an example of what it means to have one copy of the gene and have some expression? What's some illness or some characteristic that reflects that? Well, so some good examples that have come up in the last year or two are genes associated with immune response. And so people that, in fact, have less copies of a given gene, let's say they only have one as opposed to two, uh, or in fact may have none, are predisposed to actually develop certain diseases because they they can't, in fact, ward off an infection or they can't, in fact, treat or interact normally in their cells with the other cells to actually help prevent an infection. We're not talking about somebody immunocompromised because of chemotherapy or AIDS or something, somebody with just a natural kind of weakened immunity of some sort. Exactly, and we all know people like that, probably in our own family, individuals who seem to always get sick or individuals who are predisposed to certain types of allergies or some types of effect. And these are the types of genes that seem to be most variable in terms of copy number. But these aren't the only type. I mean, there are examples that go back further in the literature. I think I mentioned color blindness as an example. There are also changes, for example, in genes associated with lipoprotein levels that affect coronary heart disease risk in the population. And so there's a long list of genes that are emerging where some people have it, some people don't, some people have extra copies of it. And that's the type of information we're trying to find. Now, one of the things that's actually been in the news lately is the APOE4 gene, which is associated with a risk of Alzheimer's disease. The reason it's come up is because James Watson, one of the uh, discoverers of the structure of DNA, was presented with a copy of his genome on a DVD, and he said he was happy to make all of it public except for the status of his apolipoprotein gene. Just as an aside, it's not directly connected with what we're talking about here, but here, you know, what about, you know, James Watson's genome, or what about Mr. Wealthy Person who can afford to purchase the work of people like you to get his or her own genome done? Where is that headed? Is that a bad idea, or is it really not interesting one way or the other? I mean, I think it's actually a great idea. Because I think that the more that we look into individual genomes, such as Jim Watson's genome or, for example, the 62 individuals of which we have some information on a few of them already, we come to the conclusion that, in fact, nobody is normal genetically. Everybody has predispositions. It's just a question of where and which predisposition. So there is no perfect human with no defect in terms of their genetic code. 
I think that's the beauty of the genetic system is, in fact, there is all this variability, and in some contexts it can be seen as a susceptibility to disease, but in other contexts might be the reason you survive a plague. So I think in the end there'll be so many genomes available in the not-too-distant future that everybody will realize that, in fact, everybody has a different predisposition and there's power in knowing what your predispositions are. Okay, well, that's all the time we have. We've been talking about sequencing the genome of 62 human beings, sorting out the important differences, and our guest has been Dr. Evan Eichler, a genomics expert at the University of Washington in Seattle. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Eichler. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. We'd love to hear your comments and questions. Send us an email at xm at reachmd.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Innovations in Medicine on ReachMD XM233 the channel for medical professionals. Innovations in Medicine is sponsored by Amgen, where pioneering science delivers vital medicines.